Let us pray for a receptive heart in the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Prepare our hearts, Lord, as we come before you today. Give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. The Gospel of the Lord. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. We love a good scandal. A really good scandal is one where somebody who seems to be very high and holy and polished, you know, a member of the royal family, does something that is shocking and embarrasses a whole lot of people. The entire British tabloid industry lives and thrives and makes a whole lot of money just because of our addictive love of a good scandal. It's why the impulse aisle in grocery stores growing up always had the National Enquirer and the Sun and the Weekly World and whatever it is these days. We love a good scandal when somebody who is high and holy does something that is shameful. And today we're going to begin working our way through a letter that is all about someone high and holy doing something that is shameful. And he did it for you and he did it for me. It's going to be the gospel of Jesus, the scandalous gospel, as we read in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to look at the first five verses as we begin to, to, to dip our feet into the radical grace of our God. This is Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of Christ through his apostle, Paul. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What we see here, three things. First thing we see is a need for rescue. You can almost imagine the story we've told. You're in your backyard of your, you know, Ledoux mansion, 
and you've got all of these beautifully dressed people there for your cotillion, and the men have on black suits and ties and cufflinks, nicer than mine, and, and the women all are in cocktail dresses, and they've all got drinks and little pointy-shaped glasses and sipping things with bubbles and amazing little hors d'oeuvres, salty things over here, sweet things over here, caviar on, on little bits of brioche over there, weird things you can't pronounce because it's French, but they're on fire. It's amazing. They got the tiki torches everywhere. There's a sculpture and a fountain bubbling up in the pool. It's a beautiful day, 70 degrees, and the the Brazilian Bossa Nova band is in the background playing. You flew them in from Sao Paulo because this is a nice party, and they're going, and it's like... And then suddenly it gets dark and the wind picks up and things, leaves are swirling everywhere. You hear a lady scream, cocktail glasses are shattering on the ground. Everybody's freaking out. They're running everywhere. The wind is almost knocking you over. And suddenly somebody grabs you and pulls you up and says, you're coming with us now. And you think, what are you doing? You've ruined my party. I'll tell you another story. Imagine you are being hunted down in the streets of Mogadishu because you are the ugly American. You are the pagan infidel. You are the invader. And the militias and the strongmen and the warlords want you dead and the entire city hates you. And you've turned down a blind alley and there's snipers and bullets flying over you. Behind you guys with, with axes and torches and, and, and weird sabers and they're, 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 they're bloodthirsty and everybody's pointing them to you and you get to the end of an alley and there's no way out and you know you're going to die and then suddenly it gets really dark and the wind picks up and you hear a lady scream and people are running everywhere and the wind is almost blocking you down and then somebody grabs you and pulls you up into a helicopter and says you're coming with us now the only difference between those two stories is in the second version you knew you needed rescuing. And that's what we see in this passage is the incredible massive human need to be rescued. I was not raised a Christian. My father is an atheist. He's one of the most wonderful men on the planet, but I'm not sure he believes there's anybody up there. And I was not raised in the church. I was converted and baptized in college. And one of the things that I find most compelling about Christianity is the fact that it seems to be the only voice out there historically that is saying that we are both created good and really, really, really screwed up devastatingly damaged. The image of God, yet an image that has been shattered, that is so broken, so deeply. It's what in his book, Unapologetic, the British writer uh, Francis Spufford talks about. He he talks about our our inherent screwed-upness as humans, only he actually prefers to drop a rather more vulgar term that I won't use in the pulpit. But, But this propensity we have to screw up our relationships, we mess up our children, we mess up our emotions, we screw up our attempts to compensate for being so screwed up, and then we lie about it. Only Christianity is 
honest about this human propensity. We're universally damaged. And as Spoofer puts it, it's the only place he can be honest about his own sins and his own failures and his own screw-ups and the forgiveness that follows, which he says is why Christianity makes profound emotional sense. This honesty in the New Testament's refreshing. It's disarming. I don't have to have it together. I don't have to be righteous. I don't have to be one of the good people. I can just be made in God's image and yet broken and damaged and helplessly in need of rescue and not able to fix myself. Jesus said the healthy don't need a doctor. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 4, he came for our sins. One pastor on his deathbed told his wife, he said, Honey, I'm not here for much longer. But I can say for the first time in my life that I am absolutely sure that I am a Christian right now because I know I have never done anything truly righteous in all of my life. A lot of time, we may profess that we're sinners as some kind of doctrinal statement, but when I look at my life, saying I'm a sinner is not a doctrinal statement. It's an assertion of bare, bald reality. The Bible talks about religious people in Romans 1 to 3, and it talks about horrible pagans in Romans 1 to 3. The religious people have their sins, like gossip and slander and not being merciful to the weak and the broken. And he compares them to pagans who do whatever they want with all of their their sexual sins and their various flavors of idolatry. And St. Paul then concludes that between these two groups, there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are desperately in need of rescue. Christians, we've been trying for 2,000 years to prove the Bible wrong on this point, to say that they're good people and bad people and we're in the good people group. But the Bible says, no, we're all in the messed up, broken people made in God's image, but an image that is damaged because our relationship with God has been broken. I often quote, you know, Ray Cortese and his illustration when he talks about Jeffrey Dahmer. I always have to do it in mixed crowds with children present in very vague ways. But Jeffrey Dahmer, if you remember in the 1980s, early 1990s, was a serial killer. He had more than a dozen victims, usually young gay men that he preyed on. And he was desperately afraid of being alone all of his life. And so he would drug these men one at a time and and, um, cause them to fall asleep. And then while they're asleep, he would operate on them in the attempt to get them into a catatonic or vegetative state so that they would never leave him, so that he would always have someone at his side. And invariably, in trying to render them in that state, they would not make it. And uh, then he would, uh, uh, well, what he would do with the body uh, can't really be said in this kind of context, but he was a serial killer and he was a cannibal. And uh, he was finally caught. One of his victims got away. The police came in. They realized what had happened, and they sentenced him to life in prison. And while in prison, uh, um, Jeffrey Dahmer began meeting with a Baptist pastor. And as he would meet with this Baptist pastor and they would go through the New Testament, something started happening in Jeffrey Dahmer. He started to see this figure, Jesus, as one who would never leave him, one who would even embrace him as a sinner, one who would forgive him. And Jesus began to become beautiful, and God's word became beautiful. And it was no longer this crushing word that told him he was hopeless, but it was an invitation from Jesus into a relationship with him. And and he professed faith in Jesus Christ, and he was baptized there in that prison. And six months later, Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal, 
was bludgeoned to death in the shower by a fellow inmate and entered into the presence of God as a fully loved and accepted son of God who was worthy and righteous in the presence of God. And the degree to which you are struggling with that statement is the degree to which you do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are your sins any different? How are my sins any different? Against a holy and righteous God altogether worthy, the degree to which you want to put a footnote and say, well, if he was really a Christian, well, if that was really the case, the degree to which you need to footnote Jeffrey Dahmer's testimony, the degree to which you need to qualify it away and relativize it and make it sound like it's not that easy is the degree to which you do not believe the power of the blood of Jesus to wash even your sins away. I mean, religious people, church people, we are some of the worst, but this is a scandalous gospel. How could God let someone get away with something like that? How could God save people who are so unqualified like Jeffrey Dahmer or like Greg Johnson or like you? How different we are from St. Paul who wrote 13 books of the Bible including this letter to the Galatians had visions of heaven saw the risen Jesus Christ and yet could only describe himself as a Christian leader and as as an apostle, as the chief of all sinners, as the worst of them all, worse than Jeffrey Dahmer, the CEO of depravity. You see, we're a hard mission field as people in churches. Christianity, though, is, is so much more pessimistic about the human condition than religions are. See, religions say, here's the best way. Here's the way to be safe. Follow it. And the Bible doesn't give us that rosy of an assessment because we wouldn't be able to follow it. But the good news of Jesus is so much better. And it's better to be underestimated. To be underestimated, what's going to happen? Well, if you overestimate yourself, I have a friend who who embellished his resume in order to get a job. He got a job. He had it a few months. They realized he couldn't do the job. He was unemployed, and then he had that on his resume the rest of his life. Because it's dangerous to overestimate your capacity. If you underestimate your capacity, if you lowball it, worst-case scenario, you got a job that is very secure and boring. But if you overestimate, you could totally tank your career. And that's the problem with religious people. We overestimate ourselves. We look down on other sinners. We find some class of people that we can think they're the evil people and we're the good people. We are willing to follow God and they're not willing. Uh, It makes us very hard soil. You know, the day's going to come when when you're, if you have Jesus as your Savior, you're going to die and you're going to stand before God and then he's going to put you in a Bible study group. I assume they have Bible studies. I don't know. Maybe you don't need it because God's there. But in heaven, you're going to be in a group and you're going to walk in. And you're going to see your, 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 your Bible study leader, and you're going to recognize him because Jeffrey Dahmer is going to be heading your group, and he's going to be looking at you. And his eyes are going to be getting wider and wider and wider, and his jaw is going to drop, and he is going to audibly gasp as he's pointing at you. He's going to say, oh, I never thought I'd see you here. Yeah, that's the power of the gospel. Because God gives mercy even to elder brothers, even to the self-righteous, even to church people, even to religious people, God gives mercy grace through Jesus? Do you feel your need of a rescuer to rescue us from the present evil age in verse 4? 
Do you realize that this world is so broken beyond repair that nothing is right? Nothing is as it should be. Everything is so much less than God intended. We're made in God's image and of infinite worth on his account, but nevertheless fallen, broken, and all wrong. Do you feel your need for a rescuer? Because that's what this passage is assuming, that we need someone to rescue us from this present evil age. We cannot do it ourselves. And what we see here then is Jesus, the rescuer. We see our need for rescue, and then we see Jesus is that rescuer. This is the carpenter from Nazareth, the guy who walked the earth, the carpenter's son who was mocked in the synagogue in his own hometown. This same Jesus is the Jesus that Paul encountered while hunting down Christians on the road to Damascus in Syria. And by the way that Paul drops the name of Jesus, this Jesus is something more than a human. You know, you look at verse 1. Paul says he's an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You look at verse 3. It says, greetings from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you've been in church too long, that might not sound weird to you anymore. But if you can imagine, God the Father and Greg Johnson send you greetings. I was made an apostle because God the Father and Greg Johnson appointed me. What's wrong with that? Nobody gets double billing with God. To use God and Jesus as a joint account, so to speak, it's saying something incredibly powerful for a radical monotheist like St. Paul. It means that Jesus, this rescuer, this same Jesus who walked the earth in Nazareth, who died and rose and is beside the Father now, is something far, far more than human. For a Jewish scholar like Paul to tie those names together is to say that he's divine, that, that, that Jesus is God the Son. It's why Paul can write the apostolic benediction in 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's why in Ephesians 1 he can begin the book with an 11-verse sentence in which he praises God the Father for planning salvation and God the Son for, for accomplishing salvation and God the Holy Spirit for sealing that salvation to, to, to us. And, and after the Father, he says to the praise of his glory. And after the Son, he says to the praise of his glory. And after the Spirit, he says to the praise of his glory. It's why Jesus spoke a baptismal formula in Matthew's gospel to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's why at Jesus' baptism, you see him and you hear the voice of the Father and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. There's a Trinitarianism within the Bible itself, within the New Testament itself. And Paul is concerned that these Christians in Galatia, by losing Jesus, by losing the gospel, they're losing connection with God himself. And so he's warning them. He's saying, folks, you you think you get the gospel, but you don't. And I'm going to explain things to you. And I'm going to have an intensity in this book that might surprise you. This is a doctrinal letter. Most of the other letters of the New Testament are written to specific churches, responding to specific needs, like in 1 Corinthians. Oh, about the things you wrote about. Let me talk about those. But this one's written to a group of of churches. And it's, it's mainly about a doctrinal point. And, and Paul is going to argue about doctrine because he feels there are teachers in the Galatian churches that are muddying up the clarity of the gospel and putting people's souls at risk. And so he's going to be forceful. He's going to be even polemical in parts of this letter. Because for Paul, the way you answer certain questions about Jesus and about the gospel, the message of Jesus, are going to have a very profound effect on your soul and on the souls of your children after you. 
Now, Tim Keller raises the concern that many of us might have whenever we read someone denouncing false doctrine. Uh, I, I certainly don't like being denounced. And uh, Keller explains, he says, you might tend to hear this, you might push back, saying, you know, everyone has a right to come to their own conclusions about doctrine and morality. It's, it's wrong to denounce someone else's beliefs. But Keller responds by pointing out that the Nazis killed millions of people in the 1940s. Why did they do that? You say, well, that was an evil thing. Sure, it was an evil thing, but why did they do it? Why destroy so many precious lives? Nobody comes up and says, hey, you want to go do something evil? No, they did it because they believed something. They did it because they believed that some groups of people were subhuman and unworthy of protection. They did it because they believed some set of doctrine. Say, wait a minute, I thought we're talking about religious beliefs. Well, we are. Do you believe that all human beings are equal and worthy of protection? That is not an empirical belief. Of course it's not an empirical belief. Go to science and ask science if human beings are equal. And they'll say, of course not. They'll give you bell curves. Or ask if everybody's equally valuable. They'll say we're $8 in chemicals. Or conclude based on natural selection that certain weak ones maybe should die or be eaten. Do you believe what the Nazis did is evil? If you do, it is because you have a belief that what they did was evil and not good. And that is not an empirical conclusion. It is a belief, a religious belief, essentially. And when you say we're going to stop genocide in the world, what you're saying is we're going to combat false doctrine in the world. See, genocide is always set on a set of doctrinal beliefs, not empirical. They are faith, and you are combating false doctrine. And Keller illustrates this by asking whether you've ever found yourself trying to talk someone out of suicide. I've been in that position. And you're combating false doctrine when you do that. Because they're insisting that they're worthless. They're saying nobody could ever love them. They're saying there's no point, that their life has no value, their life has no meaning. Now, are those empirical beliefs? Did they get those from science? Of course not. And you're trying to combat those beliefs by telling them that their life does have meaning, that they are not worthless. Paul's first line in Galatians in the Greek is Paulos Apostolos Uk. Paul, an apostle, not. Because Paul is willing to say no to falsehood, to false teaching. In this book of Galatians, it's a book that's changed the world, and it's the only way anybody's ever going to do that. And what we see in this passage is this immense burden that the churches get the gospel that we have clarity about Jesus as our rescuer. Jesus is the one who loves the broken and the bruised and those damaged by the fall. Jesus who loves sinners and delights in rescuing you. I believe we're at a critical junction in the church in North America today. I read a lot of blogs and listen to a lot of podcasts and see a lot of comments on Facebook and comments in Twitter. And I see so much moralism, so much self-righteousness, a gospel that is no gospel at all, a gospel that says there's grace for the non-believer who comes to Christ, but then there's law for the believer, a, a, a message that, that, 
that says you stop being a sinner and, and fix up your life once you're converted. A, a religion that, that pressures you to hide the damage, conceal the brokenness, and pretend that you're further along spiritually than you actually are. I see, I see pastors telling people that you can't be a Christian if you identify with your sin. And then I see St. Paul saying, you can't be a Christian unless you identify with your sin. Because sinners are the only class of human beings to which Jesus came to save. Stop trying to not need a rescuer anymore. Sit in your filth and let God love you. Don't fake it till you make it. Just be the big shameful sinner loved by Jesus and let his love work on your heart and lead you in doing the hard work of actually learning to live with holiness and reverence for him. Some of you know what moralism is like. You grew up in it. You grew up in churches. You grew up in families. You grew up in in cultures that were immersed in this sense that you have to pretend that you've got it together and you're not really broken anymore. I read a story the other day that resonated with me. It was from the early 1970s. The phone rang in a high society Boston home one night. And on the other end of the line was a son who had just returned from Vietnam and he was calling from California. His folks were the affluent, kind, high society, and all that goes with it. And the boy said to his mother, I, I just called to tell you that I, I wanted to bring a buddy home with me. His mother said, sure, bring him along for a few days. But mother, there's something you need to know about this boy. Uh, one of his legs is gone, and one of his arms is gone, and one of his eyes is missing, and his face is pretty disfigured. Is it all right if I bring him home? His mother said, bring him home for a few days. The son said, you don't understand me, Mom. I want to bring him home to live with us. And the mother began to make all kinds of excuses about embarrassment and what people would think. And then the phone clicked, and he hung up. A few hours later, the police called from California to Boston. The mother picked up the phone again. The police sergeant at the other end said, We just found a boy with one arm, one leg, one eye, and a mangled face who's just killed himself with a shot to the head. The identification papers on the body say he's your son. Friends, that's the church in America today. We don't want broken people, not shameful people, not people who who wear it outside because that might make us look bad. Our church is safe for the disabled. Our church is safe for people with addictions. Our church is safe for people with mental illnesses. Our church is safe for people struggling with infertility. Our church is safe for people with sexual struggles that may never really go away. Our church is safe for the porn addict who's learning to be free because he knows what Jesus is to him. Our church is safe for men and women with criminal records. Is it a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus? Is church a safe place for the gospel? Is church a safe place to experience the welcome of Jesus? Are churches a safe place to experience the scandalous gospel of Jesus Christ, which has mercy to rescue all of us into his grace and care? Martin Luther said, May may a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which Everyone is good. I want to be in a church of the faint-hearted, the failed, the feeble, and the ailing who believe in the forgiveness of sins. Friends, 
Do you know your need for rescue? And are you seeing Jesus as that rescuer? Because this is a declaration of rescue. It's what the gospel is. It's not a set of instructions in the ancient world to be brought good news meant when your army was far off on a battlefield and another enemy army was coming at your city and they were going to loot and destroy your city, tear down the walls, carry off your sons and daughters and destroy and burn everything to the ground and your army goes out to a distant battlefield to fight this other army and you know it's hopeless. It's not really hopeful. It's going to be bad news. And yet when you see that runner coming from the battlefield, collapsing at the city gate saying, the victory has been achieved. We have vanquished the enemy. The city has been saved. Friends, that is not a set of instructions. That is gospel. That is good news. It is not an invitation. It is a declaration. And the declaration here in verse 4 is that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us. The Greek here doesn't mean Jesus gave himself because of our sins as a consequence. It means Jesus gave himself on behalf of our sins. On behalf, the difference that Jesus was not a consequence but a a voluntary substitution like in a courtroom. When, when, When the judge sees your crime and, and, and declares you guilty and sentences you to death. And then that same judge stands down, goes onto the floor, hands himself over to the bailiffs to be handcuffed and says, and now I'm going to my death in your place. That's the gospel, the declaration that God has already done this for us. He has taken responsibility for all of your sins, all of your shame. You don't bear it anymore if you are a Christian. He has taken full responsibility and handed himself over for your sake because he loves you, not because you were seeking him. He did it in verse 4 because it was the Father's will, a declaration, not an instruction. It's so different from the way religion works then and from the way it it works now. You know, we get addicted to religious self-help books that tell you nine principles for this, 12 principles for that, six steps to this, how to live a happy, holy life, how to have a perfect marriage, all of these rules and regulations and guidelines and policies and procedures, and it can become so focused on us. It's the case in Jesus' day with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were good evangelical Christians on the surface. They read their Bibles every day. They prayed all the time. They they tithed their income. They they sent out missionaries. Jesus said to them, he said, you know, you, you search the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. They missed the point. He said that, that, that they, they pray. They, they love to pray standing in order to be seen. It's like the tax collector and the Pharisee. They're at the wall and the Pharisee is saying, Lord, I thank you that I am not like sinful men. I tithe and I give generously and I pray and I live a holy life not like that sinner. And then the sinner, the tax collector is over there and he won't even look up to God. He's so ashamed of what he's done. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that was the one who went home, what? Justified declared righteous before a holy God who was pleased with him and not with the other. You know, the Pharisees, Jesus says that you, you, you send men over land and sea to make a single convert and then make them twice the child of hell you are yourselves. He says you tithe your mint and your cumin. These are kitchen spices that they're tithing. And yet you neglect the weightier matters of love and justice and mercy. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. We picture the Bible 
as 66 books of instruction manual. And it's not. It's a historical account of God rescuing his people, declaring it. Uh, You know, I've read so many accounts of drownings in the Merrimack River. Uh, You know, there are always the signs. It's the river at the southern edge of St. Louis County. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, there are all, all these signs saying, don't go in the water, this is not a safe place to swim. And everybody says, no, it's fine, we'll go in the water, it's a safe place to swim. And, and then, you know, every year somebody doesn't make it out. And you picture this girl, eight years old, and she's gone too far down the river to the point where it starts to turn and the bottom drops out of the river and it becomes three times as deep and you get the undercurrent pulling people under. And you can almost picture that moment when this girl is realizing that it's not fun anymore and her giggles have stopped and her laughter has stopped and she's flailing her arms and she's starting to cry out and she's yelling to the shore and she's getting pulled under and she can't resist it. It's too powerful for her. And there are people on the shore and they're yelling at her, giving her instructions, telling her how to swim. And, and it's not doing anything to help until a football player realizes what's going on and he runs down the bank and dives in the water ahead of her and five minutes later drags her out alive. Friends, when you were drowning in this evil age, the Lord Jesus Christ did not send you a book to tell you how to swim. He dove in and he rescued you and he pulled you out. It's the gospel. A declaration is different from instructions. A declaration is when your son is in the emergency room and there's been a terrible car accident and you don't think he's going to make it out alive and there's some well-meaning person right across from you in the waiting room telling you how to, how to raise your child and telling you how you, you should have done it and how you shouldn't have driven this way and you shouldn't have let him drive and you should have told him this and you should have told him that. All of these instructions that doesn't do a bit of good. The only thing you want to hear is you are waiting for those double doors to open up and, and that surgeon come out of surgery and she takes off her gauze mask and she washes her hands and she tells you, he made it out fine, he's going to live, we were able to save his life, everything will be okay. That's a declaration. That's what the gospel is, a declaration that Jesus has already saved you. He died in verse 1 and he rose from the dead. It's, it's Jesus who found you cornered in the streets of Mogadishu and jumped down to move you to a place of safety while he took the bullets that were intended for you. And he did it because he loves you and it's an accomplished fact. You were the one drowning in sin and meaninglessness of this present evil age when he dove in to rescue you and he drowned instead of you. I was Jeffrey Dahmer when Jesus took that burden off my shoulders and shouldered it himself and he was the one who was damned on the cross instead of me being damned in hell so that Jeffrey Dahmer's like me can go free. He did it because he loves us. You were the one dead on that operating room table when Jesus took your place, giving you life and taking your death. So great is his passion for those who believe. Then this same Jesus rose from the dead by the Father's power to declare to you that it is finished. Your rescue has been accomplished. Jesus is the one now bursting through those double doors, taking the mask off, washing his hands, and saying, everything has been done. You're going to be fine. You're going to live forever with me now. I have rescued you. It's the rescue mission. It's been successful. Rescued by Jesus. I've shared a story once before. Um, it was January 11th of 2014, 11.47 in the morning in Maricopa, Arizona. And a mom was walking with her two-year-old daughter. And two-year-old daughter, they were, they were at a swap meet, kind of a, a, a farmer's market. And a little girl 
started running after the dog, chasing the dog, and she ran over a 21-inch plastic cover that had been shattered in two places, and the cover flipped, and the little girl fell down seven feet into a septic tank. The mother's screams reached the crowd nearby, and a 27-year-old guy named Henry Ricketts, who had just been released from prison, ran up and he dove in face first into that narrow hole into a seven-foot deep septic tank, almost five feet of raw sewage, and he was under the water, and he was looking for her. He was moving around. After, after that, several minutes were passing. Three minutes had gone by, then four minutes, and then a fifth minute, and the crowd managed to pull him out, but he didn't have the little girl. And then another man, Aldencio Rios, 29 years old, dove in headfirst. They had a guy on either side of him holding his ankles so that they could pull him out. And after many minutes... They pulled him out, clutching the lifeless body of that two-year-old girl. And at once a woman in the crowd pressed her lips to the child's lips and breathed into her. And after a couple minutes, the little girl was breathing on her own. She was looking around. She started crying, and she was talking, and she was going to be okay. She had been rescued. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He dove into the septic tank of this world, the septic tank of this present evil age, and he dove in face first to rescue us. And when you've been rescued out of a septic tank, you don't always smell very pretty. You're covered with filth. Our lives are a mess, but Jesus dove in to rescue us, and the rescue succeeded no matter how badly you and I may smell from time to time. And if you get close to me, you're going to know it. Jesus nevertheless brings the aroma of grace the scent of salvation and the fragrance of the gospel on that, friends, the church stands or falls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship and bless your name for you are the one who dove into this world of brokenness, of shame, of sorrow and loss. You are the one who dove in to rescue us and that rescue has been accomplished. You have forgiven us of our sins and you have clothed us with your righteousness, a resume that can never be embellished. We bless your holy name, Jesus, because you are the one who died and you are the one who lives and you are the one interceding for us even now as we come to this table and consecrate to you the elements here that you might preach good news to your church here in St. Louis. It's through your name that we now pray. Amen.